You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. Sally Struthers, the actress who played Gloria in All in the Family. All in the Family, if you don't know, was one of the most iconic TV shows of all time. It ran for nine seasons, and then it had spinoff after spinoff after spinoff. The Jeffersons, Maude, Gloria, Archie Bunker's Place, and on and on. It was done by Norman Lear, who was 100 years old. But on this podcast today, we have Sally Struthers, who played Gloria in All in the Family, and Gloria in the TV show Gloria. And we also have Alan Piper, who wrote and directed the horror film Evil Sublet, soon to be in theaters and homes everywhere. Just won Best Feature Film at the Coney Island Film Festival, Evil Sublet. And Alan Piper also was involved in various presidential elections. So I asked him some questions about that. Like He was on the rapid response team for Hillary Clinton. I asked him, what did Hillary do wrong in 2016? And Sally Struthers had some interesting things to say about Norman Lear and her career and what the most depressing point in her career was and how she came back from it. It was very beautiful. So here's Sally Struthers and Alan Piper about their new film, Evil Sublet. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. 
This is the James Altucher Show. Thank you guys for coming on the podcast. Sally, it's an honor. I've been a huge fan since I've been a kid. I saw almost probably every episode of All in the Family. Alan, I've been researching you as part of the research for Evil Sublet and, and this podcast. How are you two doing? Oh, it's a, it's a great day here in New York. Uh, we, uh, we miss you in New York. Well, I do miss New York, actually. My daughters live there. My family lives there. It's, uh, and New York City is a very special place. You have daughters? I have two daughters. Yeah, they're both living in Brooklyn. Where in Brooklyn and how old are they? 20 and 24. And they kind of live in, I don't know, one of the new Williamsburg-ish hip areas. They're trying to be hip. But uh, but they love it. They love New York City and they love uh, working there. And and I lived there for 30 years. So, you know, I miss it and I miss them when I'm not around them. I'm sure. Congratulations, by the way, Evil Sublet winning Best Feature Film at the Coney Island Film Festival. How did that feel? Oh, that felt wonderful. It was very important to us that we screen at the Coney Island Film Festival. Uh, this movie is a is a very... New Yorky film, and that's something that I'm very proud of. I think even though New York is such an important media capital, New York is really not well represented in media. Most most f films and TV shows that are set in New York are actually filmed somewhere else. And uh, I wanted to make a movie that really captured New York. And we did it at a time that was obviously one of the most painful times in New York's history because we were all set to shoot the whole movie in March and April of 2020. Uh, Sally had, uh, uh, we had her ticket booked to uh, to come out for her scenes. And of course we had to put everything on hold. And at a time when some people were giving up on New York, I really got to see New Yorkers pulling together. And uh, I particularly saw that in Coney Island. We were invited to film in Dino's Wonder Wheel Park before, <laughs> things, before things got shut down. And in 2020, Dino's Wonder Wheel Park was going to be celebrating the 100th anniversary of the Wonder Wheel. And uh, of course, it was shut down for the whole season. And instead of using their 3D printer to make the celebratory items that they were going to make, they made face shields that they distributed uh, to the hospitals in the area. Coney Island was one of the neighborhoods that was hardest hit, both both in terms of the death toll and financially. And uh, Dino's Wonder Wheel Amusement Park and the various businesses in Coney Island and Coney Island, USA, really played an active role in supporting the community. So we had the opportunity to show at a, at a festival that, that, uh, that was saying that they would you know, that they'd be able to get much more uh, press for us. But they said, but you have to, you can't show anywhere else first. And there was no way we were not going to show this uh, this movie uh, in the beautiful, mythical playground that is Coney Island. And uh, so I'm I'm just absolutely thrilled that we premiered the movie there and that it won Best Feature. So, so when did you shoot it if you couldn't shoot it in 2020? So we came up with some creative solutions. Uh, the the movie stars my wife Jennifer Lee Houston. It she's is amazing. She's amazing. She's amazing. She's amazing. She should be on this podcast, not me. I have a teeny tiny cameo in this darling film, but Alan's wife Jennifer Lee Houston carries the whole film on her back brilliantly. She's everything and then some. Go ahead. I'm sorry, Alan. 
Well, we, uh, we figured out some ways to shoot with just her in our actually haunted apartment during quarantine. And SAG said, well, you know, that's okay. You're, you're locked up in there anyway, so that's fine. Uh, and then we filmed the rest of the movie in 2021 under uh, SAG's uh, COVID safety protocols. And I'm very proud that uh, there were no, uh, we ran a very careful set and there were no infections on the set. And uh, I was, that's one of the reminders of what's great about having a good union is that SAG provided excellent uh, details about steps that we could take to ensure that everyone was safe. And uh, so I was glad to be able to do that. And how did you two meet? Alan and, and his wife, Jen, and I, it's your dear friends. They had a party. You were there. Yes. Well, who was that? Uh, Pat Dwyer and Stephen Mosier, who play some of the leading roles in this movie, uh, had a party. And uh, and Sally was there. And we became friends and then had the amazingly good fortune of, of being able to coax her into uh, playing a key role in this film. Oh, I great. worked with a wonderful actress, Leslie Alexander, in a musical called Nice Work If You Can Get It about, I don't know, six years ago in Ogunquit, Maine. And we've remained friends ever since. And I was visiting New York and I was sleeping on her fold-out sofa in her living room. And she said, why don't you come to a party with me tonight? And she told me about the two guys whose place it was. And I, I don't even know how she knows them. But she said, there's going to be... It's not going to be crowded, but there's going to be some really interesting people there. My good friends, Alan Piper and his wife, Jen Houston, will be there. And I think you'll really like them. We became, from that night forward, close, tight, wonderful friends. Jen and Alan are both so multi-talented in so many arenas that they just blow my mind because I only do one thing, and that's perform. And I can't do anything else. I don't even know how to type. <laughs> Jen runs a baking company and, well, she does a myriad of things. Alan will tell you all she does. And Alan is on television reporting the news as well as writing, filming, directing, and editing a movie. I mean, there's nothing Alan can't do. And he comes from a very creative mother who lives in Boston, who is an incredible portrait artist. And uh. I don't know, there's just art all around. I'm just tagging along for the ride. And and the movie is about, it's called Evil Sublet. It's about basically a sublet. It was even apparently advertised as evil. And the main character feels like, oh, that must stand for East Village. And there's all sorts of horrible and horrific things that happen in this apartment. What makes, because I have no idea, what makes a good horror story slash movie? Like, how do you scare people who are kind of immune to being scared? They've seen everything. They've seen every horror movie. Well, I think I think for me, uh, I think for me, what always makes a horror movie work is is the personal, relatable aspect. Uh, ours is a horror comedy. It is there are there are gross, shocking moments that people who are looking for that will uh, will enjoy. But there is also a lot of laughs. Uh, but I think uh, I think a lot of people. Uh, we have an affordable housing crisis in America, especially in New York. I think a lot of people can relate to the idea that uh, people are willing to put up with a lot of strange things in order yeah. to get an affordable apartment. And uh, certainly in New York, that is the case. Yeah. So, so this apartment's uh, correct me if I'm wrong. It's a th it's the, the apartment in the in the movie is a three bedroom apartment for two thousand dollars a month, which in New York City, just in case nobody realizes this outside of New York. That's impossible. You will 
I don't think you would ever see that right now in New York City. A three-bedroom apartment for $2,000 a month. So as one of the characters says, uh, when he, they're being shown through the apartment, that what's wrong with it? Because the, it's too good to be true. And our actual apartment, which I wish I wish it actually were that cheap, but it is it is still we we get this apartment for for I think a lot less than a lot of New Yorkers would expect to. And part of it is because weird things really do happen here. Uh, I tend to, you know I'm I try to be a scientifically minded person, so I don't say, oh, it's ghosts. But I will say very strange things happen here. Uh, my wife has felt a cold hand grab her in the night. She's uh, heard voices that was your shouting at her. And then you ran away really quickly, so she didn't see it was you. <laughs> <laughs> it was not me. Uh, and we've had some of the strange things that have happened, we actually managed to catch on camera and edit into the movie. Like what? So a lot of the things that happen in the movie are recreations of things that really happen here. So there's a moment when an object fell off a shelf on its own, which happens a lot. And you know, there are all sorts of reasons why that could happen. Maybe a subway is passing underneath. I don't know. But so we did this scene where uh, my wife's character comes in. She finds an object. Uh, she finds a uh, picture frame that has fallen off a shelf. It is shattered on the ground and it's just lying there. And it wasn't until I was actually editing the scene that I saw that while she wasn't looking at it, and we'd placed it there. It hadn't actually fallen. We'd placed it on the floor, just nice and solidly on the floor. And it just started moving for no reason that I can oh that I can particularly explain. So so that was one instance of something. I didn't even know we captured that until I was editing the scene. Again, I'm not I'm not, you know, I'm not a, a paranormal expert. I'm not going to say it was a ghost moving it, but I will say I have no idea why it was moving. How old is this building that you and Jen live in? It was built in 1851. Wow. There's bound to be paranormal activity. Can you imagine all the people that probably passed away in there, had terrible fights, maybe somebody was even murdered? Yeah. I mean, that's pretty old even for New York City. Like, where where do you live? Like the, In the I, East I, Village. In the it, East actually Village? Actually, in the Eville. Yes, the East Village. I like what was around in the East Village in 1850 cuz like Tribeca was the area where a lot of people lived in the early 1800s and they worked in sort of the Wall Street area but lived, Tribeca was was where they lived and then places like the Upper West Side were considered almost like suburbs. Yeah, this uh this neighborhood has uh has gone through so many iterations uh over time. It was a, it was a a German neighborhood at one point. Uh it is it is often it's often taken on uh, an ethnic immigrant identity and at different points in history, that's different identities, whether it's uh, a German neighborhood, an Irish neighborhood, a Jewish neighborhood. It is still large parts of this neighborhood are Ukrainian uh, families uh, live here, but it is increasingly becoming, uh, well, it's, it's increasingly shifting and it always shifts and that's the nature of New York. I mean, Sally, you're very familiar with New York, uh, All in the Family. The, the show you're in for an infinite number of years, it seems, was was shot in Astoria, or or at least no, takes no, just the outside of the house was shot for the opening credits. We made All in the Family at the CBS Studios in uh, Los Angeles. Okay, but but the 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 house that Archie Bunker and you live in is set in Astoria. Yes, in Queens, apparently. in New York. I, I've never seen it, but I've. Certainly seen that opening credit thousands of times. Yeah. 
You know, I'm a West Coast gal. I was born and raised in Portland, Oregon, and then came down to California to go to college and have been here since. But in the last 30 years, I've barely been here. I'm a homeowner, but I call it my vacation home because I only see it about seven, eight weeks a year. I'm always on the road, not traveling, but I mean, away from home, living out of a suitcase, doing a play or a musical, and every once in a while, a tour. So I'm, but when I'm in New York and I ask somebody where something is, they laugh at me because they think I'm being funny. They think I'm a New Yorker. They think I either made all in the family there or that I I live there and neither is true. And so I really don't know where things are in New York City and the surrounding areas that I'm always lost. And um, people don't seem to understand that. Well, I guess because... I mean, they shouldn't understand that because it's it, we buy into the mythology of television and movies that the, we're watching these things because we relate so much and we feel in our brains like these are really occurring. Like I'm really watching this family argue about racial issues and social issues and and with this, you know, Carol O'Connor who plays Archie Bunker as such this New York accent and and you know, it feels very real. It's it it you know, I grew up on All in the Family and all the spinoffs, you know, the the Jeffersons and and, and so on. And Archie Bunker's plays, Gloria. Uh, you played Gloria. Maud. Good time. Was Good Times a spinoff of All in the Family? No, but Norman Lear was grinding these out yeah. right and left all at the same time. And so I'm just curious, like, I feel like there aren't shows anymore like Good Times and All in the Family. Like, Good Times really felt the grittiness you know, that part of New York City and, and that family. And you just don't, everything feels so fake now compared to shows like that. I don't know, James. I, you know, just like fashion, humor and filmmaking and everything morphs. Uh, for a couple of years, men wear wider ties and their lapels are wider on their suits or they're narrower and their shirt styles are different. And then you know, seven years later, that's all out and a new look is in. And the same with women's hemlines. They're above your knee. They're at your knee. They're below your knee. They're mini. They're maxi. The, it, entertainment morphs too. And you, you never know, you know, what's coming down the pike. But All in the Family took a, quite a while to get on the air. It was made first two years in a row a pilot by ABC. And each year they were too nervous to put it on the air and just shelved that pilot, you know, in a back closet. And then they would take it out and dust it off and say, no, we can't put this on. And it was the new president of CBS that finally eventually put it on the air. So by the time that happened, Rob Reiner and I were the third set of kids. There had been two Mikes and two Glorias before us. Oh, really? And I I heard you were um, nervous, maybe is the wrong word, but I heard you thought maybe Penny Marshall was going to be cast as well, she she Gloria. was one of the four girls. I'll say girls, young women, though it was narrowed down to third time around. Huh. Rob Reiner had already been cast as Mike Stivic, Archie's son-in-law, and Carol O'Connor and Jean Stapleton came part and parcel with the project. They were there from day one. So it was always Carol and Jean playing Archie and Edith. So when I went in to meet Norman Lear, and then he narrowed that group, I don't know how many young women he saw, 100, 200, and it was narrowed down to four to do the final audition. One of the four was Penny Marshall. And I knew Rob and I knew Penny. And I thought sitting in the outer office, well, the final audition is to go into that room over there and do improvisations with Rob Reiner in front of all these CBS executives and Norman Lear and his 
partner, Bud Yorkin, and Rob's obviously going to do better with Penny, either intentionally or unintentionally, because they live together, and he's going to marry her, and they have that rhythm going and that knowledge of each other, finishing each other's sentences. I don't stand a chance. So since I don't stand a chance, there's no reason to get nervous. So I'll just go in there and do what they asked me to do and leave. Well, I'm not getting this. And you know the end of that story. No, well, actually, I don't because what happened in the audition? Like, uh, Well, I uh, guess it went fine, and I got a phone call that I got it, and we were making them, and we had eight in the can before it ever went on the air. It aired in January of 71. In those following weeks, it quickly rose to number one on television, and we were all in shock and awe and feeling our oats and trying to get adjusted to being on such a popular show. And I went on a break on camera blocking day over to Norman Lear, who was standing at the sidelines watching down on the soundstage. And uh, I said, Norman, remember a couple months back when when you were still auditioning and there were four of us left to buy for the part of Gloria? And I said, I, was I really the funniest one? Did I get more laughs in that room than the other three gals? And he said, no. <laughs> I just I sat down with the writers and we decided if the show has goes on the air and stays on the air and has any longevity, what are we going to get more storylines out of and great moments, having Gloria be her mama's girl or having her be a daddy's girl? And we decided since Archie Bunker was so controversial, and there would be people who didn't appreciate his bigotry and his uneducated views. We had to soften him up. And the best way to soften him up would have his daughter be his soft spot. So we hired you because just like Carol O'Connor, you have blue eyes and a fat face. He didn't say that. He said that. Oh, he did. I swear on any Bible that's in my house. He did say that to me. He said that about my face to my face. Oh and my I God. just faded away into the background, licking my wounds. And, you know, Norman Lear is such an inspiration for, for the whole medium of television. Like he basically created the whole 70s of television, him and, and maybe a handful of others. But what do you learn from him in terms of telling a story? Like what was, what was, what was his you secret what? of churning this out? You know what, James? I'd rather talk about anything else, and mostly evil sublet, because I'm not a fan of Norman Lear's, and we can end that subject right there. Can you say why you're not a fan? I've got a lot of reasons. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. 
Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit, and I was so excited because side by side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit, where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides, like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours. And they, they were willing to pay for everything for me. So I, I, at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like, if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see, you'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter, and I got nonstop, really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast. And the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. What was it like for you filming a horror film? I mean, I heard that you you get scared in horror films. So did you get scared while filming this? I did not get scared at all because I was with people that I love and my scenes were not scary except for the very last scene I'm in, which is about less than a minute long. And that's kind of how the film ends. But the other two scenes, uh, my character is living in a storage unit. <laughs> And they're not scary scenes. They're they're mostly exposition, and then um, uh, the second big scene in the in the storage unit is a big reveal about my character and why these people are living in an evil sublet. And it was 
it was fast and furious because when you're on a limited budget, there's no time to do 17 takes and refine the moments. You've got to trust your actors. And Alan was directing and we were in a storage unit way, way out of the city somewhere and going as fast as we could to get these two scenes done. And there there wasn't anything scary happening in the scenes. And um, he sent, Alan sent the film to my nephew to uh, show to me. And I watched it on my phone. I've never watched anything on my phone. I I am not good with buttons. My nephew was just here a few minutes ago and got me set up on this Zoom telephone call because I, I don't know how to do anything. I I don't type. I, I, I don't wear clothes with buttons. I, buttons <laughs> throw me off. So I thought, oh, how am I going to watch this? It's so small and I'm so spoiled with a big TV screen and going to a movie house and seeing everything so large. And I was entranced. I was intrigued. I couldn't put my phone down. And when it was over, I was thrilled that I got to be in this movie because when you are a septuagenarian and you look back at your career and you say, is there anything I could have done better? Is there anything I haven't done that I would really like to do? Being in a horror film like um, Jamie Lee Curtis was on my list. I will just say, well, first of all, the scariest moment for me on this whole project was when I had sent the video to Sally, because I have such admiration, such deep admiration for for Sally. And and my goal was to try to make a, a movie that would be worthy of her involvement. And honestly, the fact that she likes it matters more to me than anything else that uh, that has happened uh, with this movie or that will happen. Well, Alan, was it was it hard directing Sally? Like knowing, I mean, she's this icon of of TV history. Well, and I'll I'll tell you that is something else. That I was I was hard to work with Alan. You can tell him. You were not. Uh, it is now. I've I've had the good fortune of of working with some some very high profile people. I, I worked on uh, President Obama's uh, campaign video team on his uh, reelection campaign. Uh, I worked on the uh, Hillary Clinton campaign, and I was the senior politics producer for Now This for four years, which led me to interview everyone uh, who was uh, everyone, everyone actually except the incumbent who was running for president in uh, in 2020. So I have I've I don't get starstruck so much around uh, important people, but this was the first time I was directing someone like Sally in a scripted scene that I had written. I think everyone on set, it was the first day back after having put the whole film on hold for over a year because of COVID-19. And I think all of us were nervous just to be in a room with other people again and to have that first day be with an absolute icon of the American screen I think a lot of us felt very intimidated going into that day. Sally was just such a joy to work with and put everyone at so much ease immediately that uh, I think I think in some ways the positive attitude that Sally engendered on that first day of returning to shooting post quarantine really set the mood for the entire rest of shooting the movie and and I think it really did carry over into keeping a positive and happy set 
uh, throughout the whole well, process. Well, you, you, you talk about me like you and Jennifer Lee Houston, your wife, are ogres, and that I came in like little Miss Mary Sunshine with a straw hat and gloves and made everybody sing Getting to Know You. No, you, you set the mood on the set. You're highly intelligent, so you kind of scare me. <laughs> and you know you know a lot about a lot, which makes me feel small. Um, but you don't pontificate like my dead ex-husband. And I like saying my dead ex-husband. Is that evil? <laughs> I don't know. That is a little evil, but that but we'll forgive you. And uh you're 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 just a joy and a pleasure, and you're enthusiastic like a 14-year-old boy. And then let's talk about your wife. She is hilarious and she is sarcastic. And I love really intelligent sarcasm. And she is a high energy gal. I try to keep up with her when I'm around her, but I'm old enough to be her mother. So it's not easy. So you guys set the tone on the set. I just walked in and I think the, my one contribution to speaking of the set, which was a storage unit in a storage facility, was that I did say to you, Alan, because I'm a very literal human being, I said, if I live in here, I think that we need a bucket and a roll of toilet paper in the background to show that I really live in here. Because right now there's a chair and there's a lamp and there's some boxes, but you've got to, you know, human beings go to the bathroom. And sure enough, that bucket and toilet paper is in the scene too. And it, and the shot of it got a big laugh in uh, in Coney Island. You know, that's a really good point. Like, Alan, why didn't you think that where she where is this person who lives in a storage unit gonna go to the bathroom? Uh well, I, I I'm I'm glad that Sally thought of it. It um yeah. I always wondered, like in Star Trek, where everybody went to the bathroom because it didn't seem like anybody needed to go to the bathroom in the 23rd century. Yeah, exactly. and it doesn't think, seem like I those think... outfits lend themselves to uh yeah. to getting in and out of for that purpose. I think they're all catheterized. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, I I always wondered about that. But, you know, Alan, were you a fan of the horror genre before you wrote this? Yes, yes, very much. And I feel like we're at a moment of increasing love for horror. And I think that often happens historically at moments of great social turmoil, that when we are processing real-life horror that is, that is often too hard to face, having a facsimile of horror, I think, makes it uh, makes it easier to deal with. Uh, very much watching horror movies became my comfort place during 2020. Uh, and I think that's probably true for a lot of other people. What else you should know about Alan and I found out. And so a couple of years ago, I searched around and was able for his birthday to find a couple of things for him that luckily he didn't have because he collects things from Coney Island from way, way back. And they've got wonderful things all over there apartment in New York that are Coney Island. And um, so obviously that doesn't surprise me that when he wrote this film, Coney Island was part of the setting of the film. I could think of only one other movie that is known for being set in Coney Island, which is um, the Woody Allen movie, I'm forgetting now. Wonder Wheel. Yeah, Wonder Wheel, okay. Yeah. And what's, what's uh, the one where, the, is that the one where the, the roller coaster like is going through his house when he's growing oh, up. Oh, Annie Hall. Annie, Annie Hall. Hall. That okay. was yes, and that was uh, the I believe that was the original Thunderbolt, which isn't there uh, anymore. Hmm. Uh, but uh, there's there are a lot of there are a lot of great Coney Island movies, and so I, I'm just uh, I'm just honored to have uh, to add our list to add our film to the list of Coney Island movies. James Allen turned his camera toward the crowd that was there. 
for the Coney Island Film Festival right after this, this group in this room had all watched the film. And he had them all, you know, yell and say hi to me, which meant an awful lot. But there was a person there that made an interesting comment to him, which Alan shared with me. And Alan shared with me the fellow's name. And of course, Alan being an expert on all things Coney Island, knew who this guy was, was thrilled he was there. And I had to look him up on my phone, which took me an hour and a half because I don't do buttons. Um, his name is what, Alan? Zamora the Torture King. <laughs> so <laughs> the one, I, I love film festivals and the world has great film festivals. I really do think the Coney Island Film Festival is the coolest festival in the world because it's the only one where you can, you can see these great movies and then walk outside and ride a ride or see a sideshow performer. So one of the movies at the Coney Island Film Festival, the opening night movie, was a documentary uh, about the uh, Jim Rose Circus in which Zamora the Torture King was a performer. And Zamora the Torture King was present at the festival on the opening night as part of the opening night festivities. He took a sharp uh, metal wire and uh, drove it into his mouth and out through the bottom of his chin. Uh, because really, in, in the tradition of Houdini, he is a mind-over-physical-matter genius. Anyway, I didn't realize he was in the audience for Evil Sublet. But afterwards, uh, he said that it was very, very strange in a good way. And coming from that performer, uh, I that was a that was a bit of uh, that was a comment that really warmed my heart. How do you do that? How do you put like a blade through your mouth and out your chin? Is there like an area where there's there's less flesh and less nerves? Uh, you know, you would have to talk to him about the process of doing it, and that that would be a great. That would be a great episode would be to, uh, to have him. <laughs> this is what I want to know, Alan. I want to know, did did he walk up to you and you immediately knew who he was by looking at him? Or he said to you, you know, uh, uh, hello, Alan, I'm Z Zamora, the torture king. Well, I, I knew who he was. I knew who he was because he's famous. And I also knew who he was. If I had not already known who he was, I had uh, I had seen the documentary the night before. Uh, so. Uh, I, I did know who he was, um, but uh, uh, yes, I was very happy to hear what he had to say. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your crave. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate. Pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. And so, Alan, I'm just curious. You worked on the Obama campaign. You worked on several campaigns. I was reading that in 2016, you were in Hillary Clinton's rapid response team. This is I know this is not about evil subway, but I'm just curious, from your perspective, what do you think went wrong? Like, in the summer of 2016, Hillary Clinton was winning. She had a very visual imagery, like, do you want Trump's hands on the red button? 
And then what went wrong after that, do you think? All right. Well, everyone has a theory. And I'll tell you that in a race, in a presidential race that comes down to uh, just under 80,000 votes, everyone's theory is correct, because that is such a small number of votes that anything, uh, any one difference, if you want to say, uh, you know, if you want to say, oh, it was the Comey letter. Yes, absolutely. That was enough to swing 80,000 votes. Was it sexism? Absolutely, sexism played a role. That's enough to swing 80,000 votes. Should, you know, was it uh, not enough time spent in a given swing state? You could second guess a million things. I think any one person who worked on that campaign, I made videos that were seen by millions of people. If the videos I made were seen by millions and the vote came down to 80,000, is there something I could have done better that could have been the difference for 80,000 votes? This gets to actually a problem that uh, that there's increasing interest in, which is trying to reform the Electoral College. We are having ever more close elections uh, decided by a narrower margin where the actual election isn't very close. Uh, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote by more than 3 million votes. The margin of victory, thanks to the Electoral College, for Joe Biden was also very narrow. It was, uh, I believe, an even narrower margin of victory. And yet it was an even wider margin of uh, of victory in terms of the popular vote. So the problem is that the way the Electoral College creates a system now where 80% of the country, our votes don't matter as much as a handful of voters in swing states. I realize I've taken us a little bit off topic of- No, no, I took us off topic. Well, so uh, there's a growing movement for, uh, it would be very difficult to abolish the Electoral College because that requires a constitutional amendment, but there is a growing movement for what is called uh, the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. And that is an agreement between states that would award that state's electoral votes. If enough states sign on to the compact, they would all agree- to submit all of their electoral votes to the winner of the national popular vote. Already, uh, there are a lot of states that have already signed on. If enough states signed on to reach 270 votes, we would never again have a president take office without winning the popular vote, as has already happened twice this century. Uh, We would no longer have a situation where, you know, if you're If you're a Republican in New York, your vote doesn't matter so much. If you're a Democrat in Alabama, your vote doesn't matter so much. Anyway, I've taken us down a wonky path. Sally has a comment. Yes, I'm curious. I have a question, Alan. What what is this pact called? Say it again, that people are signing on to states. Uh, The National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. What is the minimum number of states that have to sign on for it to be something that becomes an actual enacted a piece of legislation in this country? It would require a few more states. It it would require enough states so that their combined vote total would be more than 270 electoral votes. And and where are they right now? Uh, it's, it's a little under that. And I can point you to, if you want to find out more about this, Inequality Media and Robert Reich, with whom I work, have just put out a video on the topic. And so people who want to learn more about the National or national Popular Vote Interstate Compact can check it out but, there. But Alan, let's say I lived in Wyoming and Wyoming was part of this. Wouldn't I feel that, oh, my, my vote now really is meaningless? You know, some people are making that argument, but as it stands now... Doesn't it make, if this comes into being, doesn't it make 
everybody's individual vote more meaningful because it will be the popular vote that elects. That is okay. That's a yes, point. Yes, that is yeah. that is that is what I would argue. That's what a lot of people who support this argue. Virtually all states to have a winner-take-all system with their electoral votes. So if you're in a state and you cast your vote for the loser of your state, your vote is effectively thrown out. Your vote doesn't go into the pool because all of the electors, even even if it's just by a narrow margin. As it stands now, as it stands now, as with it the electoral stands now. college. But, but if this right. act is yes. enacted, your, the national your individual popular votes vote, will count. Yes. And it is, I mean, at the moment, at the moment, the only presidents this century who have won without winning the popular vote were Republicans. Uh, so at the moment, at the moment, one could say, oh, well, this this favors Democrats over Republicans. This favors democracy. It uh, the the loser, the person, the person who didn't ideally in a democracy, the person who wins should be the person who got the most votes. Uh, there may be more people identifying as Democrats now. There may be more people identifying as Republicans in the future. We should, taking party out of it, we should, if we believe in democracy, we should want the winner of the most votes to be the one who's elected. And after, yeah, yeah right. And after that election, can I ask, were you really depressed? I, it, uh, I, you know, I think... So I've been on uh, I've been on winning presidential campaigns and I've been on losing presidential campaigns. It feels better to win, uh, but um, I wasn't depressed for myself uh, so much. It's painful to put in a lot of work for something and have it not pay off. But you know I'm in a place of privilege. I'm I'm a uh, college educated uh, white man. I was not depressed for myself. I was depressed because. The things that came to pass were the things that we'd predicted. Uh, we'd predicted that uh, the president would weaponize immigration policy in a way that would tear families apart. And um, that is exactly what happened. Uh, we we predicted that the president would appoint judges who would strip away reproductive freedoms. And that is what has happened. And again, that's not something that is going to affect my body. So I am not depressed for myself. I am depressed for the state of rights in, in our country. Uh, and we also, we also predicted that at a moment of great national crisis, uh, that president would not be able to rise to the occasion. And the, uh, the sad truth is, no matter who was president, COVID would have had a devastating impact on the country. But we specifically had a president who concealed the dangers that were being made aware that he was being made aware of by his own security team, uh, who hampered the ability of public health officials to get the word out about those dangers, undermined calls for wearing of masks and social distancing. And uh, there have been studies that show that a large percentage of the deaths that occurred in 2020 could have been averted had there been a strategic response as opposed to an impulsive, uh, ego-centered response to the crisis. So that's the thing that's depressing to me, not that the work that I did didn't pay off. James? Yes, Sally Struthers. I always wanted to say that. Oh, I'm glad you did. Because a lot of people come up to me and say, aren't you Sally Field? Anyway, <laughs> now do you see, after hearing Alan speak, why, if you had to measure the stress in the room, the first moments 
that I started shooting my small part in his film, I was frightened and nervous because Alan is so aware of everything that's going on and so well-spoken and such a high IQ that I just feel like, where's Waldo? I was just thinking that while he was talking, like, oh, this guy really not only knows a lot, but it's, has the way you said it, Alan, was compassionate without being overbearing. It was, it was good. Well, I, I've, I've had the good fortune to be in the room with people who are smarter than I am at some key moments in history. And so I, I've just, I'm just sharing what I've, what I've gleaned. But uh, the, the, Sally, I'm very sorry if at any moment uh, you felt intimidated because I have just such deep admiration for your, for your talent. And James, I, I want to say that, uh, uh, you know, I, I don't want to reveal the twists that are involved with, uh, with Sally's character, but her performance and the surprises that she brings to her, her performance, there were moments where I had to bite my hand to not laugh and spoil the take. And then there were other moments where I was tearing up because of the poignance that, uh, that she brought to the role. Well, this is a national treasure and everyone should want to work with her. And I'm just incredibly, incredibly lucky that uh, that that she was a part of our project. Just the fact, Sally, that you play someone who lives in a storage locker, that's enough to get me to see the movie. Because I often thought when I first was in New York City, and it is so, all anybody talks about in New York City, particularly young people, is how am I going to live? Where am I going to live? What Do you know of an apartment? Can I find an apartment? It's impossible to find an apartment. Is there a roommate? Is the area good? Like my kids are going through this. They lived in the East Village. Now they're living, both living in Brooklyn. It is hard. I lived in I lived in the Chelsea Hotel when I first got to New York, and I but before that, I actually I lived in Astoria a little bit, and it is hard. And and there's so much to deal with. This New York City is a hard place to live, when, particularly when you're when you're young. I just wanted to say about Alan talking more than once in this interview so kindly and adoringly of me that the. The, who's missing on camera and who's missing being spoken about more is his wife, Jennifer Lee Houston, who is quite a phenomenal woman and she deserves to be interviewed more than me. She's in almost every shot of this film and she does a bang up job. And this film was shot, you know, so quickly because of budget restraints and she just didn't fail her husband or any of us. And I wish she was here. Alan, can you speak adoringly about your wife, the way you speak about me, but even more so? Cause Alan, she's, actually, she... let, let, let me ask because she in the trailer, by the way, she's hilarious. Like just her timing, everything. But how did you and Jennifer meet? You know, we just, uh, we, there's not a great story. We met at a friend's party. Uh, well, I mean, the you meet everyone at parties. We met, we, yes, I meet every, apparently I meet everyone who's important in my life at parties. Uh, we met at a, uh, we met at a, a party and it was, uh, uh, it was basically love at first sight. And I was a real jerk to my oldest friend that night because Why? I was at the party. My oldest friend was at the party, someone I've been friends with uh, since third grade. I sat down at a, at the dinner table. It was a dinner party. I sat down at dinner next to my wife, my future wife, Jen, and my oldest friend was sitting at the end of the table 
to my left. And I was just so taken with this woman. I just turned my back on my friend, literally turned my back on my friend. And I just uh, I just talked to uh, to Jen all night. And I guess my friend uh, talked to no one uh, that night. Yeah, but uh, your friend and- knew, you know, the rules are the rules. You 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 give your boy uh, a chance there to not talk to you if, if he's got something going on. So that's the rules. I think he's forgiven me because his wife uh, is uh, is one of the four producers on the film. His wife, Beth Ann Mestre Marino. And he actually... Uh, my friend Mike Boyko was was involved in uh, in one of the more difficult scenes. So I think he's forgiven me for that. I think since I married the woman that I was uh, talking to that night. But what Sally is saying is true. Jennifer is extraordinary, and she does every range of emotion in this movie. She is her character is put through kind of literal hell. And she is funny. She is poignant. She is driven to tears. She is driven to screams. She and she's is... so strong. Yes, and and she's uh, she's a musical performer. She sings multiple uh, songs in the movie. Wow! So it is. She had, in her own right, made a name for herself as a viral performer, performing. Well, I guess everything comes back to politics. She did political song parodies during the Trump presidency that got uh, many millions of views. And that's what a lot of viewers know her best as. Where, so, where did she um, do them? Like on YouTube or TikTok? Or? Uh, yeah, on, uh, well, on uh, Facebook uh, and, uh, and Twitter. Uh, yes. Uh, so okay. if, you, if, if, you, if you look for uh, things like crime after crime or pathological <laughs> liar, you'll, uh, you'll, you'll find a many tens of billions of views videos that she's done. She is an extraordinary performer. So so what's next? Does it, like now that you have won uh, an award, or you're probably going to be at other film festivals. What's next? Do you release this independently? Do you try to sell it to a Netflix? Does a studio pick it up? Like what what happens next to a movie like this? We're going to uh, be playing at a number of festivals. The next one will be the Grossman Fantastic Film Festival in Slovenia uh, next month. Slovenia. Slovenia, yes. Maribor, the only city I know of in Slovenia. Uh no, no, and, and I'm not sure how to pronounce the name of the city where it is. So I am not going to, I'm not going to butcher it. Uh, so that is the next festival on our agenda. We're going to play at a number of festivals, uh, and then we will soon be able to make an announcement about a distribution deal. And the goal is for the film to ultimately be widely available for people to see and people who follow us who people who follow evil sublet on social media or go to evilsublet.com will be able to find out uh when they can see it james you have to ask alan to tell you about how he got extra funding for the film i i saw there was kind of like almost like a patreon like page but tell me alan how did you get how did you get the final funding for the film we got a, a fair share of the budget from the offer that anyone who donated over $20 could have their face turned into a ghost in the movie. Oh, that's great. So that's brilliant. This face, that's an obvious face. But in the movie, we might have like in the shadows a face that you don't notice uh, right away. So we have over 200 hidden ghostly faces in the movie. I'm happy we did this for several reasons. There's the logistical reason that it helped us pay for making the movie. But also, I like that the people who 
contributed to the movie are literally a part of it. But also, it's pretty darn creepy. When it was premiering at the Coney Island Film Festival last week, there was one moment where I'm sitting near someone and I know that there's been this face in the background the whole time. You know, it's in the middle of the scene and then somebody goes, what? And then, and then, like, they just noticed that a face was there the whole time. And there's something very disturbing about a face having been there that you that you didn't notice right away. Wow. I Well, I can't wait to see it. When do you think I'll be? I, I tried to get a link because, uh, you know, uh, we were doing this podcast. I tried to get to a link to it, but you guys said, no, not available. When can I see this movie? Well, you're in Atlanta. Hopefully, we'll be coming to a, a festival in your neck of the woods soon. And uh, then hopefully, before too long, we'll be able to uh, make announcements about when and where people can see it, either in theaters or uh, on streaming services. I can't wait. And it's Evil Sublet, Alan Piper, Sally Struthers. You've been winning awards. It's been getting buzz. I really look forward to it. It sounds like I, I saw, I love the trailer. I love the concept, having been involved in looking for apartments many, many times for decades in New York City. I, Sally, I would like to ask one more question just on your on your career. And this is an odd question, but you've had such a, a storied and, again, iconic career. And this is going to sound like a weird question, but at what point do you think you were the most depressed in your career? And how did you deal with that? Well, I've got to admit that when I was finished filming All in the Family. I did eight seasons, as did Rob Reiner. Our contracts were up. We both chose not to renew. And then I, in real life, gave birth to my daughter. And uh, she was three years old when CBS decided to go ahead and put a Gloria sitcom on and place it on the same night and the next half hour after Archie Bunker's place, which Carol O'Connor was doing when when Jean Stapleton had finished her contract and didn't renew, and there was just Carol O'Connor willing to play Archie a little more. And so they moved him from that empty house to the bar and made him the owner of the bar called Archie Bunker's Place. So they positioned Archie Bunker's Place in the first half hour, and then following that on CBS was Gloria. And Gloria was doing very well. But the executives, I call them the suits, you know, a bunch of business people who get to make artistic decisions, but they graduated from college with business degrees. They're not artistic people. They're numbers crunchers. And so Carol didn't want to play Archie anymore. He'd been doing it for 10 or 11 years. He was done. So they literally threw the baby out with the bathwater. They said, well, we, we don't care to keep Gloria on the air since we don't have Archie Bunker's place to lead in. We won't put it on all by itself to see if it still holds its audience. We're just going to take Sally off too. Mm. And I have to admit that I was terribly depressed about not being given a chance to see if I could fly on my own without the lead in of Archie Bunker's place. That was, that was a bitter pill to swallow. But as you can see, I'm still here. I'm still working. I never stop working. How did you bounce back emotionally from that? Well, I had a, a daughter at home, a little tiny girl, and I'd just been through a divorce. We, my husband and I divorced when she was not even one. Mm. So that occupied all my time and gave me great joy. I mean, life does always give you the yin with the yang. You just have to wake up and realize it. So that might have been depressing career-wise, but I had 
wanted to be a mother terribly. And there was my beautiful baby girl. And that brought me great joy. You know, you have two girls. Yeah, well, thank you for that answer. And and thank you, Alan, for coming on the podcast and Sally for coming on the podcast and Evil Sublet. I've never really been a big fan of the horror genre, but I absolutely cannot wait to see this given how you guys have been describing it, given what I've read and what I've already seen. I cannot wait to see this. Evil Sublet. I hope you get on Amazon or Netflix at least because that's mostly what I watch. I watch Apple Plus also <laughs> and, and HBO Max, all the other streaming services actually. So please get somewhere or be in the movie theaters anywhere because I want to see this now and send it to my daughters too. Thank you so much. Thank you for, for having us and thank you for those words. Thank you, James. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Oh my gosh, Gloria. Saving money on everything for your projects. Now at Menards. We have it all for garden and landscaping essentials. Visit our outdoor garden center today and update your backyard space. Grid accents lattice panels have a timeless design with an innovative design that's simple to install and requires almost no maintenance. Save big on lattice panel options at Menards. View our entire selection of garden center products today on Menards.com. Save big money at At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.